0: Hello and welcome to Unpacking My Privilege, a resource for intersectional feminists who are changing the world. My name is Chanel Peterson. My pronouns are she and her, and I am so infinitely grateful to have you here listening today. So, as I just mentioned, this is a podcast for changing the world. And so, I cannot express to you how honored and grateful I am to have Andre Henry on the podcast today. Andre Henry is a musician, writer, activist, recently came out with the book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, and he has literally studied nonviolent civil resistance. And in this episode, you basically get a play-by-play as to how to change the world. Through listening to this podcast and reading his book, you'll understand that a movement, a revolution is started with rage and anger and is continued with love and creativity and community from other people who want to do better for the world. Something that I really found interesting is that nonviolent civil resistance, as in civil resistance without violence, is not just like a morally right thing to do. It is effective. It is effective and long-lasting. You'll hear more about that in the episode. And he also talks about a study that was done that mentions that you only need, I believe, 3.4% of the population to make a massive revolution. And that is inspiring in and of itself to know that we don't need every single person hands on deck there can still be people that oppose us, a lot of people that oppose us, and we can still make a change. And that Black people in the United States have four times the number to create change. That's wonderful to hear. In this episode, you will hear that he advocates for multiracial coalitions. And it's just very fascinating and inspiring and exciting to hear this. So without further ado, please welcome Andre Henry to the podcast. Thank you, Andre for being on the podcast today. We're so lucky to have you.
1: Well, Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: I was wondering if you could please introduce yourself to the people the way you'd like to be introduced.
1: Uh, for sure. Um, My name is Andre. Um, <laughs> it's funny that I'm doing this right now because I just got out of a meeting where people are like, you shouldn't introduce yourself as a musician first. It's confusing. But I'm a musician and I'm an author and um, with a deep passion for racial justice. So I've been working a lot lately on helping people understand uh, nonviolent civil resistance to create you know, more racial progress because that's the journey I've been on lately. So I'm trying to share everything that I've learned with people.
0: Absolutely. And would you please tell us what change do you wish to see in the world?
1: Wow, yeah, big question. Um, how, how do I summarize this? I want, I want to live in a world where Black people no longer have to worry about our safety on a daily basis and where all of the structural barriers to black joy have been eliminated.
0: Beautiful, yes, love that answer, love that answer. Now, I wanna dive into your book because not only did you write a book, you wrote a brilliant book. Is this your first book you've ever written?
1: This is my first book. Thank you so much for that, by the way.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like. How much time did it take you to write it? Because it was so like, you just put a lot of thought into it and I could really tell.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the, the thing about that is um, they say in music that you have your whole life to write your first album. And I feel like I had my whole life to write my first book, right? Like I, there's so much of my story that I'm sharing, so much of my journey of trying to learn about systemic racism and learn about nonviolent struggle. So if we count the whole process of writing the proposal and writing the book, then it's somewhere around a year and a half, two years or so. Um, If we're just talking about, okay, like when you got the book deal and, you know, wrote the first draft, I wrote the rough draft in like four months and then the next nine months was editing.
0: And I'm assuming you probably had to like divide it up into chapters and like, send it to editor. Like, I'm just very interested (laughs) in writing a book.
1: (laughs) So oftentimes when you're writing nonfiction, you start with a proposal that you're going to submit to publishers, right? Hoping that someone, one of these publishers is going to be, it's, it's almost like a business proposal, right? Like you're writing, this is the book that I think that I would like to write. Would you like to fund it? That's basically the situation you're in. Right. And that proposal will usually have an overview of what the book's going to be about a little bit about you as the author, and what you intend to write. So you do need to write like a table of contents and a summary of those chapters. This is what you think you're going to write. So I had written an open letter called To All the White Friends That I, that I Couldn't Keep in 2019 to, you know, some of the folks that I wrote about in the book. You know, who at that time in 2019 were on the Internet saying things like, Andre's a racist. He hates white people, blah, 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 yada, yada. And so I was like, eh, you know, I really don't feel like you can just go around saying those kinds of things without a receipt. Like, show me the text message. Show me the blog post. Show me the tweet. show me, Give me the audio recording where I ever said that. And so I decided to write a receipt of my love for them and explain the reason why we are no longer in relationship has nothing to do with hatred for you. It has everything to do with your refusal to believe me about what I'm saying about systemic racism. And more than that, your refusal to fight alongside me for a world where we are safe and for a world that's just, well, that blog went viral. And an agent reached out to me shortly after saying he felt like there was a book in there. And then, you know, that process of the proposal, all that kind of stuff came from there.
0: Yeah, cool. Yes. I know that in your book, you talk about how uh, you were thinking that you would get into like religious, like maybe be like a, like a pastor or a priest. Um, um, where, did you ever know that you were going to write a book about religion, but also about social justice?
1: Uh, you know, um, so I actually was a pastor for a while uh, in New York City. I was a teaching pastor and a worship pastor, music pastor for seven years. And I got two degrees in theology and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, music has been my first love. So I've always been making music. I was in New York making music. And so I thought earlier in life that I would be a musician who still like preached in church and maybe taught theology or something like that. And I did want to write at least a book you know, earlier on, I wanted to write, you know, I thought I thought being an author would be cool. I really like writing and you know, all that kind of stuff. And I thought that I would write like a Jesus book one day, like write a book about, you know, you know, about theology, you know, and writing about my perspective on what I think, you know, the good news and all that kind of stuff is. I did not think that I would write a book about racism ever. That never crossed my mind. You know, I didn't even think that I would be... <laughs> I mean, I have an email list that reaches people around the world talking about nonviolent civil resistance and anti-racism and stuff like that. You couldn't have told me 10 years ago. That's what I'd be doing today. I would never have believed you.
0: Yeah. I saw so much of even my own story in your story. Um, I grew up in small town, rural South Dakota. You grew up by Confederate Mount Rushmore. I was by... Mount Mount Rushmore, (laughs) still very, you know, white supremacist. And you talk about how, you know, when you were a kid, you know, you didn't even think that racism was a big deal. And then like you had this moment of, oh my gosh, yes, it is. Hmm. Um, And you really compartmentalize, um, like realizing that, you know, not all, uh non-black people of color like aren't automatically allies and just explain so much of of my journey that I've realized as I started to do this work
1: yeah yeah I mean I mentioned that later on in the book where I say like a lot of the lessons that I felt like white people needed to learn about racism were lessons that I needed to learn too because we all get the same white supremacist anti-black education right we we are all trained in this um, in, in this miseducation about race and racial justice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to like point out that this podcast, um, is a, it's a resource for intersectional feminists who want to change the world. And you literally wrote a book about a revolution. Like you are, I'm like, I don't want to like dance over the fact that I'm so grateful that you are here right now.
1: I, I'm grateful for that, too, and I really appreciate I appreciate you highlighting that part as well, because this book has layers, and I don't think that people always trace the personal and the political here, right? That, like, yes, I am inviting people into my story, and the reason I'm doing that is because my agent said that they need to get to know the author. So, like, I could have just written a book that was like, okay, here's what you need to know about revolutions in social movement planning, right? But it's, it's connecting the personal to the structural in that, in a way, and really trying to give like all this information that I learned while I started studying social movements that most people just don't know. And as I was reading this stuff for the first time, I kept going, why doesn't everybody know this? Why don't they teach this in school? There are no TV shows about this. There are no mood about this. You know, it's, it's all kind of in this world of activist writing and social sociological writing, you know, that a lot of people aren't going to read. And so this is actually what I really wanted to do. Like, this is a part of what I feel like my purpose in life is, is to bring that information, you know, out of these kind of silos and out of the margins and put it in front of people where they, meet people where they are with it. Because, you know, we need, we need millions of people to have this information.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in your book, you actually talk about um, how white people can join white people for black lives and surge, standing up for racial justice. Mm -hmm. And I read that and I went like wild because um, since moving to Los Angeles, um, I have joined that group. and, And I'm like, I just like your book covers everything <laughs> including like black rage and and the importance of it and and joy and 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 I think that it I love that you brought your story into it and you know when you when you are introducing yourself I love that you mentioned that you're a music, musician because when I first uh learned about you I was a little bit confused like how do these like Blend into each other, but once you start looking into your work, it absolutely makes sense.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that a lot because I think that you know we. I think this is actually a result of capitalism, honestly. So I hear this special this idea of specialization. So it's like everyone wants to think of you as one thing, right? But I think one of the worst things that could happen, especially with with conversations like these, is for people to say, "Well, that guy does that because he's an activist." right? And it's like, we create this special category where only certain people are paying attention to the political and power dynamics that are going on around us. And only certain special people are fighting against these systems and structures, right? Like, I think that's a problem, right? And so I really wanted for people to see in this book, my own journey of like, you know, this guy was like playing in bars and clubs in LA and got fed up with the things that, you know, are weighing heavily on, you know, him and people in his people group. And just, he decided to use what he had to try to, to confront it because I I want for everyone to feel like they can do that too, (laughs) you know, like no matter where you are in life and no matter what your gifts and talents and passions are that like, you have something to offer to make this world better you know and you know who knows like if you apply yourself you know people who are watching your show and and, and listening you know like that if you apply those things to that thing that you're passionate about saying that that thing that bothers you right the thing that keeps you up at night the things that keep you going I mean, or you know get you get get you going in that way like you can totally make a difference with <laughs> you know, with, with the right group of people.
0: Yeah. And you do definitely stress everyday people are the people who create the most, the the biggest revolutions.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like we, we remember the names of people like Gandhi, Mandela, Dr. King, and forget that like none of those people did that work alone, you know? There were thousands and thousands and millions of people, you know, in these movements against British imperialism, in this in this movements against Jim Crow, and in the movement against apartheid, you know, or dictatorships around the world, stuff like that. It's it's all these these people whose names we'll never know, you know, we'll we'll never know the names of all the people that participated in these movements, and not just the ones that filled the streets, but also the ones who 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 just you know they they cooked meals for others or or registered participants or babysat you know the kids of people who were going out to protest and stuff like that we'll never know all of their names but all of them were so necessary
0: yeah yeah I would love to talk about um who you decided to write this book for and why that was important to you yeah. because I know like for instance. Um, Rachel Ricketts, who also does like spiritual activism, um, she writes about in her book, Do Better, that she doesn't want to write her book to white people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, that was a that was a big decision for me, because like I said, like the book came out of an open letter that I did write to white people. And then when my agent said he felt like it was a book. I started writing the proposal in that way. Okay, I'm going to make this like a larger version of that letter. And that was just really exhausting trying to do it that way. And I realized by the time I wrote the proposal, yeah, I don't want to write this book to white people because first off, so many books have already been written to white people on these subjects, right? And, and I also didn't want to write a longer book to people that I knew weren't listening already. Like by then I already knew the white friends I couldn't keep were not coming back. You know, like there was no, the relationships were irreconcilable. But I did think about myself eight years ago and the book that I felt like I would have appreciated having eight years ago. I would have appreciated a book eight years ago that validated my anger, that affirmed that I was not, you know, imagining these things. Like the first words in my book are the lyrics from my song Delusional, right? Which... You know, I wrote that song during the time that I'm speak- that I'm speaking about in the book because that was a huge declaration for me to say, like, these people keep gaslighting me and I am not delusional. Like, I know that what I'm seeing is real. I would have appreciated that book. And more than that, I would have appreciated a book that said, and there's hope. Like, there, there is a way that we can fight this thing. And that would have given me practical insight about how to participate in movements, how to build movements, all that kind of stuff. And so... I sat out to write that book in part because I knew that there were people like I'm talking, I was thinking about, you know, myself eight years ago, but there are people who are still there. There are Black people who are still there who don't feel necessarily the confidence to walk away from those gaslighting conversations and to stop trying to move immovable people who don't know about, you know, the statistics about nonviolent struggle and the nuts and bolts of how that works and, you know, who are still kind of beholden to these very popular ideas about social progress that are just bogus, that the, the, those strategies will never work. And one of those prime strategies is I think is one of the biggest lies that is spread in our culture is that the way that black people will get free is by arguing about racism with white people. That's not, that's not the way it's ever been done. Right, so I wanted for people to, I wanted people to feel liberated to not do that anymore. And to do the things that will actually work.
0: Yeah, and you even mentioned that if you mobilize, like all, like a, a, a large majority of the Black folks in America, that's all you need because we are uh, the Black population in America is already four times that um, of that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So we're talking about what some people call active popular support. And not earlier, I had another interview and I just referred to it as critical mass. And when we say critical mass, we usually think, oh, man, that's a lot of people. That's got, I mean, it is a lot of people, but it's not a large percentage of the population because of the study you're referencing by Erica Chenoweth that studied 627 situations between 1900 and 2019. And what they found was that no regime in that study could withstand the sustained nonviolent action of just three and a half percent of the population. And so, like, there's this huge misconception in in our society that, like, You you hear people say it all the time. Oh, we need everybody. We need everybody to get on board. If we're ever going to fix this problem, we need everybody. We don't. We need maybe three and a half percent of the population. You know, I mean, it's not a magic number, right? Like, it's not like if you get that number, then automatically things will change. But it shows you just how small of a portion of the population you actually need. And I think it's really liberating to think about that in, in some context, because when we talk about Black people, you know, we always talk about allies and I i mean, you read the book, so you know that I believe in, you know, interracial coalitions and all that kind of stuff. Um, but sometimes people come, people, people come to the racial justice conversation and struggle as though they're doing us a favor. And so they can kind of come in with this attitude of like, well, you should just be grateful that I'm even here. You know, like don't fight your allies, dude. You know, like I've heard that kind of attitude a lot. And so I wanted to really put that in the book and say, like, if all we need is like maybe four ish percent of the population, probably, uh, we've got plenty of black people in the country. We could do this by ourselves just to kind of buck against that kind of saviorism
0: that some people have, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I totally felt the same way. Like, this statistic is going to keep a lot of non black people. From like swooping in and being like oh you need me and <laughs>
1: yeah. I, hope so. yeah, I hope so
0: I want to also emphasize that you are an advocate for non-violent uh non-violent revolutions and I found that really really interesting um because You know, for instance, like Malcolm X believed in um, freedom by any means necessary. Um, Martin Luther King has been heavily, heavily whitewashed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so honestly, I don't think that, you know, I I could see why a violent revolution would be, I don't know, an option. Yeah.
1: In my journey, I've read so much about nonviolent struggle and read so many um, experts on the subject and studies and all that kind of thing and exceptions about what is nonviolent resistance, right? Some people seem to think that nonviolent resistance is simply just saying out loud with your mouth, violence is not the answer, right? As though that's going to defund the police or something like that, right? And the other thing I think is that people, when they think of nonviolent struggle, the first thing that they think of is like Gandhi or even Dr. King. And they represent just one tradition of nonviolent struggle, you know, which is this kind of principled, um, this, it's, it's nonviolence on principle that it's a, that it's a, that nonviolence is morally superior to, to violence. But not all, not all, practitioners and experts of nonviolence believe in that or are committed to nonviolent struggle for that same reason. Like what, like my mentor, Serge Popovic, who led the Serbian revolution, um, they, they are not necessarily committed to nonviolence on principle. They're committed to it because of the numbers, <laughs> because of the stats. Right. And that same study I mentioned earlier showed that armed struggles had been successful about 25% of the time somewhere around there it might actually be 23 but somewhere around there 25 and nonviolent struggles were successful about 50% of the time the other thing that they found was that victories through armed struggle tended to uh, the 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 regimes that were built the i don't know what what you want to say the governments that were built in the wake of those um, struggles tended to descend into civil war within 10 years, whereas those that were built after nonviolent uh, struggles tended to have much more stable democracies. And part of the reason for that is because while people are engaging in nonviolent struggle, they have to practice the same ha- habits, the same behaviors that they're going to need to use in a democracy. <laughs> so, So that's part of the reason. And then, uh, you know, the three and a half percent rule we talked about earlier. And so there are some people who they're committed to nonviolent struggle because they have found it to be a, a more viable strategy, you know, practically, historically. And that's where I fall, you know, where I'm like, I hate the fact that some people with a very superficial understanding of nonviolence use it as a club, right? And they beat Marginalize people over the head with it and say, like, you're not supposed to want to punch any white people in the face. Right. Um, (laughs) And uh, I don't I'm not an advocate of punching anyone in the face, but I would say, like, I can't honestly say that violent revolutions are never the answer. Right. We've seen violent. uh, How was America founded? Right. Like we I can't say that honestly, but I can say that, okay. Malcolm X says, "By any means necessary," right? And if we're talking about any means, nonviolence is one of those means too, <laughs> right?
0: I love that the just the practicality of it, like yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I, if I could add something to that too, it's like because now I hear a lot of people say that it's a privileged position to talk about nonviolence, and I just from my perspective, it is often the case that people choose marginalized people, uh, oppressed people choose nonviolence because they don't have the the same resources for violence as whatever oppressive state they're living under. And so for me, it's very, it's a very hopeful thing to know that if you cannot outgun your oppressors, which most of us can't, you can still win. Yeah.
0: Yes. So going back to being racially gaslit, Mm -hmm. um, A lot of the work that I do is because, you know, as I mentioned, I'm from small town, South Dakota. Um, My family is white. My community was white. Um, My state is like the leader of white supremacy, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. Um, or at least that's how it feels. Yeah. Um, And so I had this like this political awakening, something that you kind of talk about in your um, in your book when M- George Floyd was murdered. Okay. And um, I, I remember just because up into that point, I believed that, you know, it was all good. Everyone was happy. And I hate sharing this story just because it puts me in a bad light. But I mean, it's honest. Um, and so like, I remember not knowing what to say, but knowing I wanted to say something. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I posted on Instagram, just like a picture of me in a cute outfit saying, um, like I have a lot of feelings happening about what's happening with the George Floyd protests and riots. Um, I want to, revisit this because hashtag Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that at the time, hashtag Black Lives Matter was being used as a source of information. Mm -hmm. And so almost instantly, I got thousands and thousands and thousands of comments and messages saying like, check, you know, check your privilege, uh, read the room, like Mm -hmm. this hash. And some people were like mad and some people were like, um, you know this hashtag is for news only. please get off the hashtag mm-hmm. and I felt so angry and embarrassed at first,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then I started like listening, and then I realized that if all of these people are so angry like there's 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 a lesson here for me,
1: yeah,
0: for sure, and so as many people as I could, I like messaged them, and I'm like, you're right.' I'm wrong. Like, thank you for calling me out. And that was like the beginning of me realizing that, you know, I have had privilege my whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been trying to figure out kind of my place in the movement, which is why I joined places like white people for black lives. Um, And I also call myself like an intersectional feminist because I never want to like perpetuate white feminism, Mm-hmm. Um, but I also know that I don't want to teach or profit off of anti-racism. Right. And then I also want to like teach my family about racism, but maybe there's some, maybe they are considered like the unmovable ones.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah. So I guess from your perspective, what do, what place do white communicators have in this movement? Um, and maybe talk a little bit more about racial gaslighting.
1: Yeah, for sure. So uh, I guess let's start with the gaslighting, right? Like for people who are unfamiliar, the term comes from a play where a man is playing around with his wife's gas-powered lights and telling her they're only flickering in her head, right? The point is to get the target to accept the gaslighter's version of reality, right? And we see this happening, we've been seeing this happening in America. Like the Oh my gosh, like there's nothing more than a domination system wants than to not just get people to participate it, participate in it, like to get the privilege to uphold it, but to also get the oppressed to comply, right? Um, and so we've seen that and we're continuing to see that. This is what the book bannings and the demonization of critical race theory are about. And you know, it's this is this is this is widespread systemic gaslighting. Um I write in the Second chapter, I think it is that, you know, contrary to what I think might seem most natural for people, which is like to try to debate with people who are lying about the nature of reality, is that to take a take a page out of the civil rights movement and to really just work with people who share our values, who who understand what's going on in the world and to sharpen our own analysis of what's going on. And I kind of borrow from Gandhi's view of nonviolence because. Gandhi used the word satyagraha to describe uh, the type of nonviolence that they were practicing in, in the movement that he uh, led. And that word means literally something like uh, holding on to the truth, right? And so the way that we counter the gaslighting is with embodied truth. It's with embodied collective action. We saw the civil rights movement, you know, like the lie in Birmingham is racism is not a problem here. Everything's fine. The Jim, the Jim Crow system is working just fine for us. And the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Congress for Racial Equality all said, oh, yeah, really? Is that, is that the case? And they shut the city down, <laughs> which is what I'm saying. Now, my, my thought with this, and we hear this a lot, right? We say that white peop- it's white people's respons- responsibility to dismantle white supremacy. And I think about this a lot, you know, and I think that Malcolm, I think that brother Malcolm would actually agree with me on this because I feel like he did say, you know, why doesn't the nonviolent faction of the civil rights movement, you know, why don't they preach that to white people? Why don't they teach white people how to be nonviolent? And I don't know how a lot of people will feel about this, but I do think about this from time to time that I think that white people should be organizing strategic, sustained civil resistance campaigns Against the use of white power, I think that I think that you should, you know, uh, partly because especially as as America's response to protest gets more militarized and basically becomes more fascist, like the the price of civil resistance against anti black violence, systemic anti black violence, it, it, it's getting higher and it's much higher for black people to participate in that and to be on the front line. I'm remembering in 2020 right now there was a protest where everyone was lined up in front of this line of police and there was a young black man on his knees speaking with so much empathy for the officers in front of him you know speaking to them as human beings and what the officers did they they just came and took that young man into custody they didn't even look at the other protesters that were there they took him right I think that white people should be at the front of that line, you know, confronting this system with their bodies, you know? And like I also say in other places, I know I'm taking a long time, there were layers to this question, so I guess there are layers to the answer, right? Is that everyone has a role to play, right? So everyone's role is not necessarily, you know, there's, there might be an 80-year-old, you know, who hears this conversation and says, listen, <laughs> uh, <laughs> my days of like standing in front of the police and getting taken to jail, they're, they're over, they're long gone, right? So I don't think that everyone should feel like they have to do the exact same work, but I think that should be on the table, that should be an option. But for someone like a, com- a communicator, like yourself, right? You are dealing with uh, the half of the battle that uh, one scholar calls the symbolic contest, right? This is the area of common sense. It's about the way that people think. It's about the way that people make meaning of the world, right? Um, and so, a part of your role in this kind of position is to help people think differently. It's to help people move in their men- mentality down that spectrum of allies, right? And so, your work will probably look different than a community organizer, right? Um, and that is like totally valid because we need people who are like you, like bringing these conversations to people who may not read these books all the time, right? Who may not be in all of these conversations. I see it in a similar way that Ava DuVernay, like she made a documentary, 13th, right? On Netflix, that's her role to play, right? And how influential was that documentary for so many people? It, it changed, it gave us information about the 13th Amendment, the Constitution, the criminal justice system that we didn't have before. You know, when they turned, turned Brian Stevenson's book into a blockbuster movie, You know, that doesn't, you know, all these things play a role. So I just do think that white communicators should take responsibility for, like, confronting those ideological barriers, those symbolic barriers to people, you know, having, um, having a better common sense around this. And then it also depends on what part of the spectrum of allies you're working on, right? Because you might be talking to a bunch of white people that say, listen, I already agree with you. Racism is a problem. I want to do something about it, you know? So maybe with them, you're helping them, you're helping connect them to uh, different resources and groups that are active on the ground. If they're neutrals that you're going after, you know, they need information. So maybe you're, you know, telling them things about American history that they, they need to know that they've never that they've never done. If you're dealing with passive opposers, maybe you're just putting out questions that they need to answer. Right, not debating with them, just like okay, you say that this is your position, yeah. But can you answer this question, or even appealing to their values and saying like, okay, like Dr. King did. This is a huge thing Dr. King did in the civil rights movement, right? Even though I don't think he was trying to reach passive opposers, but he said, "Listen, America says that they care about democracy. Well, we do too. We're we do too." And Jim Crow's not democratic, right? So, you know, that's. I those are like a lot of thoughts I just dumped on for that question, but those are just things that come to mind.
0: No, that's amazing. Like, you don't have to answer that question at, at all, I feel like, you know, that was very kind of you to give all the options because I, I, I always want to make sure that I am centering people of color and especially Black and Indigenous folks in the work that I do. And also I want to you know, bring in ad revenue or, or AdSense so I can like maintain it and keep doing it. And that gives me like an added, like, it it doesn't make, because I need the money to sustain the work, it makes me not want to do it because I don't want to do it for the money. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. And that's just a part of living under capitalism, right? Like you don't have the power to, you don't have the power to dismantle that system today or tomorrow. Right. So there's an extent to which we can't help. Right. Like what we're doing. Right. So like, you're not profiting from this. You're not trying to make a profit from it, but like everything else, like many things in this world, it has costs, (laughs) you know? Right.
0: Right. Um, That was, that was helpful. And that's something that I want to like chew on a little bit more for sure.
1: Yeah. It's a tough one. I, even I have to wrestle with that. Right. Because like, and that's partly why I continue to do music, because I'm hoping that people can just like, okay, buy the music, buy the merchandise that goes along with the music, you know, and it'll still support me to do what I'm doing. But it's just, it's all mixed in there. Like, I have a book out now, right? Like, that you you have to buy the book, <laughs> you know, like there's money exchange there. Do I want for money to be a barrier to someone having this information? Absolutely not. And at the same time, it costs money to print and ship books, <laughs> you know, like some. Some of it's out of our control.
0: Um, I, I hope you can go a little bit deeper into like the role that a, like a person's passion and and things that bring them joy bring to the to the yeah. movement.
1: Yeah, no, that's really important. And, you know, I think that we really do need to always make sure that, you know, we we give we give credit and honor to the black radical feminists that have centered Ease and joy and all of that kind of stuff in the pursuit of black, black liberation, both as a means and an end of Black liberation. So, you know, I will say that the work of Audre Lorde, Adrian Adrienne Marie Brown, Tina Strawn, you know, um, Rachel Cargill, you know, that these, these uh, Black women and femmes have really uh, challenged me in this because. I didn't learn this from Dr. King. I didn't learn this from Malcolm X. You know, they didn't talk about joy and ease, at least to my knowledge. I still have not come across those writings if they did, or those speeches if they did. Um, and I've learned that if I could paraphrase some of that, some of that work, that Audrey Lorde and Adrian Adrian Marie Brown echoes this when they talk about like how in our bodies is kind of oh I'm quoting Adrienne at this point there's a technology in our bodies right that tells us uh that you know yes this I like this experience or this is this is what I want to be feeling yes this is the moment I need to be in um and she talks about this on my on, on my podcast so for people who want to hear someone articulate this much better than me <laughs> you know and basically to that experience of pleasure what a what Audrey Lord calls the erotic you know shapes forms or can be the center of how we view life that we say like it's not just about like I guess one of the ultimate you know versions of this is the orgasm in you know what in your bedroom, but you know it's 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 just it's this is bliss right it's delight, it's joy right. And you can have that in life, right? And we should pursue that, right? And when we are in touch with that and we welcome that, then we can align the rest of our lives and our pursuits uh, with that experience, right? And political work should be aligned to that, right? Um, I think that sometimes, well, I know that I've felt this temptation and I've seen it a lot. I've seen a lot of people succumb to this temptation, think that, in order for you to be serious about revolution and serious about political work, you just got to be a very serious person. And, you know, you get so woke that like nothing is funny anymore. Like everything is problematic, you know, like, uh, for instance, I said to someone earlier today in another interview, like I got to the point where like, even just the idea of having a life partner, like I couldn't, Enjoy it because I was dissecting it and saying, like, okay, but yeah, what we call romance is really just invented by diamond companies in the mid-20th century. And the honeymoon is racist, the white wedding is racist, you know, like uh romantic ideology, which I got from a book called Love Inc. Romantic ideology oftentimes reinforces um, um inequalities across class, race and gender, and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, yes, all of that can be true. And at the same time, cuddling is good for your mental health. <laughs> the world is on fire. Be nice to not go through that by yourself, you know, which doesn't mean you have to have a romantic partner, but it also can be friendship, community, all that kind of stuff, right? And I'll tell you what, like feeling like you have to be serious and outraged and, you know, cynical and all that kind of stuff all the time, it burns you out. It burned me out, you know? I I was so depressed, you know, a year into the work that I started after after the work of, after I watched Valencia Castile die on Facebook Live. I was so burnt out. I was like, real talk. Like I was suicidal, you know? And I've reached that point. I mean, okay, I have mental health issues. I'm on medication. That's a part of it, right? <laughs> but another part of that is like. We can't unlink, again, the personal is political. We can't unlink that kind of stress or, sorry, that, that mental state from the stress of living under racial capitalism. Like, that's a part of it, right? And so, anyway, that, I, that just kept bringing me back down. And so, I just realized, first off, Rebecca Solnit set me straight in her book, Hope in the Dark, because she wrote in their joy does not betray activism, it sustains it. And all of a sudden, I felt permission. (laughs) Like, I felt permission that I didn't feel before to be joyful. And then I started kind of seeing more examples of, like, you know, Dr. King likes to play pool. And um, Desmond Tutu liked to dance. And there's this picture online of Rosa Parks doing yoga. And, you know, like, these people had full lives. They were full people, you know? They had, they had their own joy, right? I found out that Dr. King died with the heart of a 60-year-old, even though he was only 39 because of the stress of the movement. And I said, I don't want to die that way. I don't want to die that way. Lately, the thing that's really been rocking my world is I found that Article 24 of the Human Rights Declaration is that rest and ease and leisure are actually listed among human rights. And like, I don't, I don't need that to justify having rest and leave, class, but I, it's so profound to me. And it's, it's, when I think about it, it's like, oh my gosh, how was that not more obvious that like living under a system that was literally uh, founded like on slavery right? We still live within those logics that we, we need to be productive all the time, and there's this hierarchy and all this kind of stuff, this system that steals time and, and value from our labor and alienates us from the fruit of our labor. <laughs> Did Marx just walk in here. Um, uh, like, of course, rest and leisure and ease are a human right. Of course, like, we were built for more than wage slavery and all that kind of stuff, right? So anyway, I know that I'm taking a long time on this, uh, but I just have realized that, and, and, and and it's, sorry, something that's very important to me is to remember that the reason why we do this is for enjoyment. We want for people to be able to enjoy their lives more. We want to enjoy our lives more. And that's why we do the justice work. And we don't have to just wait until it's all accomplished. We can have some of that along the way. In fact, we better or else we're going to burn out. And also what I learned from studying social movements is that when we use joy, when we use humor and we engage in it, it actually makes movements stronger. It's like a secret weapon. Like one of my mentors, Sergei Popovich, I mentioned him before, he and his friends in Serbia, they coined a phrase called Laftivism because they literally... Started that revolution by pulling pranks that just made people that broke this culture of fear around standing up to the dictator, you know. So it's so important, it's so, so, so important.
0: Yeah, you write in your book that nobody wants to go to a party that's boring or angry
1: party. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, angry party. Like, you know, like, I mean, sure, like, you know, some people will, some people respond to that, but more people are going to want to participate in the movement if they feel like they're going to have fun, right? And they can have fun. In fact, we need to have fun, right? And something I'm thinking about a lot lately is like the totalitarian system that was chattel slavery in America, right? Just how much control these uh, slaveholders and, and white America wanted to hold over Black people's bodies. Like, not just working during the day, but about whether or not we can congregate and how we can dance and how and who we have sex with and how we get married, like, so much control over, over our bodies, right? And a part of dealing with trauma, because trauma is stored in the body, is actually working, is doing things with your body, right? Like. Oh my gosh. And it just opens up so much for me when I think about this, like about the, like just the role of like dancing and exercise and breath work and yoga and all this other kind of stuff, how, how we can really be participating in our healing in these ways. So yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: The final question that I think I want to ask you is, um, can you touch on some of the really creative ways that you talk about um, doing these movements? So, like, for instance, um, you talk about your art, you talk about your music, you talk about carrying around a giant boulder. Yeah. Um, and, and as I was reading it, it reminded me of my friend, Nadia Okamoto, who does a lot with like period poverty and like period stigma. And she actually like created like this, this cereal. And so inside the cereal is period products. And that would make it SNAP eligible because, you know, in, in the food assistance program, it doesn't cover like pads and tampons, but it does, it's like a loophole that if the pads and tampons are in the cereal, it's a fictional cereal, but it's like, oh, I think it's genius. That
1: is incredible. <laughs> we need that kind of stuff to change the world. I think people really do under, like, again, I think that people think of activism as this very serious thing, you know, and it is serious. The things that we're fighting against are serious. But it takes creativity. And maybe that's why there's so many creatives, you know, that are involved in revolutionary work, you know, because first off, we talked a little bit about vision, right? Like to change the world, it takes imagination. We have to literally be able to think outside of the boxes that we're in, right? Creatives love doing that. (laughs) You know, like we love messing around with things. We love playing with things. We always act like, oh, who cares about that rule? You know what I mean? Like. Why are we following all this? Like, that's how artists often live in the world, right? Well, we have to break through this common sense that feels so entrenched and so strong. You know, people really feel like they can't do things. They they feel like they can't do things just because we haven't done it that way before. (laughs) There's nothing literally keeping us in this tradition except for the fact that we all agree that we need to keep it, right? In, in many cases. So we, and, and artists, that's our job to transgress those things, to raise conversations. And so that's one thing that, that comes to me. And so when we start thinking about these things, we start coming up with these creative tactics, right? To to cross these invisible lines, right? Like I'm thinking of the, um, one of the actions in Serbia where the dictator, uh, the powers that be outlawed protests. You Can't go outside and protest, which often happens when people start protesting. They're, all, all of a sudden, there's an injunction against protest. Um, and so, what they did was they got a bunch of toys and Lego men and all that kind of stuff, and they made protest signs for these toys, and they put the toys out on the street to to protest. Right. So it's like this is a creative action because, like, they're not they're not out in the streets. You know, there's there's no technically these are not people. <laughs> I'm protesting right um, I'm thinking of all of the stigma associated with the border wall under the Trump administration and, and I think it was an educator who installed these pink seesaws on the border wall and you have kids on the US side and kids on the on the Mexico side who are seesawing together right? completely undermining this this lie that there's some fundamental difference between people who live on opposite sides of this imaginary line that we drew, you know, uh, that we drew here. You know, we need, uh, I'm thinking of, there's a whole nother activist group, and it literally is a group of clowns. And they it's not like anyone can just join because clowning is an art form, you know, like you can't just you can't just decide this morning you're going to be a clown. You got to actually, you know, it's it's like taking up comedy or an instrument or something like that. And and that's how they do their actions. I'm thinking of Extinction Rebellion. Uh, one of the most powerful uh, ones that I've that I, uh, demonstrations I've seen them do is I, I think it was in Germany. These young climate activists had built a gallows in the street and they had nooses around their necks. And they are standing on tops of blocks of ice to illustrate, like, what's happening right now, you know, like as the ice is melting, we're threatening the future of of these generations, right? Like, this is all creativity, right? This is all art, right? And I haven't even gotten into the role, like, of songs and drama and, you know, because all of that has been important, too. Like, Dr. King said, the heart of the civil rights movement was the freedom songs, you know? And that's why I really do try to hold very dearly, you know, that like I'm an artist, <laughs> you know, like it's very important for me to put that foot forward because I want for people to know, like that's where that's how I've entered the work. And even though people tell me that I'm a good teacher and a speaker and writer, which writing is an art form too, like yes, I wrote this book, but before, but before this was words on a page. I mean, I was sitting in my car singing my own songs to keep myself sane under that crazy four years that we lived under the presidency of Donald Trump, you know? I was standing on stages in L.A. with my boulder and my suit jacket with the names of slain police victims singing, you know, about police brutality and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, well, I just want to say one more time that I'm so incredibly grateful to have had this conversation with you, mm-hmm. and I want to know how can we best support you? This is the time for you to plug anything that's important <laughs> from paid offerings, yeah. from your book to social media accounts.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, a way to keep in touch is definitely go to my website, join my mailing list, andrehenry.co. I mean, there's so many ways to support. Obviously, buying the book is really helpful um i like i said before i make music and i sell merchandise that's associated with that music you know that money really does help you know with the expenses of everything that i'm doing also like i'm a truth teller and working for working for other organizations and stuff like that is makes it hard for you to tell the truth in public so the more autonomy i have is the more honest i can be you know or public i can be with 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 these things and then i also have folks who support me monthly on patreon you know um for people who can you know like who can and want to support the work you know for eight dollars a month or whatever but yeah that's it
0: perfect all of that from the patreon to uh, andre's uh music and website and everything all of it is listed in the show notes and perfection I hope you loved that episode with andre i was so excited and nervous this man has so much in common with me and my vision for the world and it was absolutely an honor to talk with him so don't forget to shoot on over to instagram at chanel peterson official and at the andre henry And tell us what you thought of this episode. What did you learn? Are you excited to go out and get more hands on deck to make a revolution happen? I hope so. I love you so much. And I will see you in the next one. Bye, everybody.